Hello and welcome to the Settlement Podcast. Welcome back to the Settlement Podcast. It's been a while. Um, I've been doing a few other things, not to mention the Westcombe Project, films with Fen Farm, lots of stuff with interesting people doing interesting things. But I wanted to kind of resurrect the Settlement Podcast because I know people still download it, still listen to it, which is amazing. Um, you know, there's some really good people on there if you've not, not heard any of it already. But I wanted to take a slightly different direction and do something a bit uh, unusual. Previously, the Settlement Podcast has spoken to a different person every time and lots of different voices, and that's amazing. But what I really want to do is focus on someone who I think is really fascinating. Uh, there's a guy called Trevor, Trevor Warndahl. He's on Instagram as The Milk Trekker. Uh, he's an American guy and he travels the world looking at the way that cheese is a kind of a way of talking about bigger things like farming systems, like the environment, like culture. Uh, he's not just there creating delicious cheese boards and choosing a nice wine to go with it. He's telling us all about how these cheeses come about, how they're changing over time, what they need to do to survive in this changing climate we live in. So he's a really fascinating guy and he goes to some really amazingly interesting places. We're going to spend time with him as he visits some makers in some really unexpected parts of the world. We're going to hear from him every few weeks. He's going to kind of check in with me and it will be pretty rough and ready. Uh, it'll be fairly raw. It's not going to be over edited. It's just going to be a chat and we're going to hear from him talking about the people he meets the places he goes the cheeses he gets to make and try and uh, hopefully you'll join us along the way i think it's going to be really exciting i'm looking forward to the next chapter of the settlement podcast so i uh i left fen farm last night and then went and stayed up in norwich with uh with Blake and now I'm about to fly to Iceland. I have a friend who's on like this Icelandic dairy board and so they kind of promote Icelandic cheese and she's trying to encourage the like fledgling artisan cheesemakers there to hopefully be able to use raw milk to make cheese eventually and uh, do more interesting things. So I'm going, she's going to take me around to talk to some producers and just kind of give them suggestions and and I'm just curious to see uh, what's happening in in Iceland around dairy. I guess a bit of context I, I became aware of your work probably what last summer um, I know you've been traveling around for longer than that doing amazing things and like I think living a life that seems very attractive to an awful lot of people who are particularly interested in not just cheese but you know artisan produce how it's made around the world and also the people that make it I think that that's what I find really engaging is the people that you meet um, as well as you know the kind of technical side of it how did all this start how did you you know did you just have an epiphany or how did you how did you begin this journey um, so I came out of the culinary world. I was cooking in restaurants and, um, I was doing that kind of through my early twenties and I started making pizza and became really interested in cheese through that and kind of doing sourdough pizza dough. And, um, I got my first cheese making job randomly, like off Craigslist in downtown Seattle at Beecher's. So I started there making cheddar and really fell in love with it. But we were pasteurizing all our milk and I never saw the cows that were providing the milk. And so I knew that there was something missing and I became interested in kind of raw milk and farmstead cheese. And I did have an epiphany one day with a friend of mine who, was, who came, there, came there to make cheese from New York. And he was telling me about how raw milk can make cheese like basically a product of a landscape with um, 
you know, unique flavors coming from the place in which it's made. And that like, like really set a spark off that um, cheese was kind of this ultimate food and that you could tie in the study of farming and climate and history and culture to this food. So I started working at various um, levels of cheese production in the U.S. from farmstead sheep cheeses to uh, I ended up out in Jasper, out in Vermont and worked at Jasper Hill um, and spent 10 years doing that, but really got a little jaded with commercial cheese baking and the amount of kind of like regulatory hoops that cheesemakers had to jump through in order to sell their product it took away from what they really wanted to do. Um, and there's just a lot of pressure against small scale producers. So I kind of decided that I wanted to see how it was done in other countries. Um, and in 2019, I took a job in Mongolia to manage a cheese plant there and then flew there and was kind of developing cheeses and working with milk that we were buying from herders in, in the area around Ulaanbaatar, the capital. And I kind of realized that it was silly to expect everyone in the world to make camembert and cheddar um, when this place already had these amazing dairying traditions with so much history. So I eventually quit my job and just traveled around and was staying with families and um, got to spend time kind of living alongside these herders and, and working with them and um, studying not only their milking and milk fermentation, but the whole like practice of raising livestock in that place, which blew my mind. It completely uh, made me realize how limited a lot of the paradigms were that I had been raised with in, in dairying and cheese making in the West. Well, and how limited the conversation is as well, I think that's what I really I'm enjoying about you know your work and a few other people as well is that is that the conversation is expanding it seems daily it's not just around how to put together the perfect cheese board with a beautiful glass of wine next to it and sell it to someone in a michelin star restaurant you know that's sort of that's part of it maybe in certain cultures but there's this massive chain that is sort of forgotten about and i think the fact that you're doing what you do kind of helps shine a light on on the work of people you know, like the people you've been with in the UK recently, but people all over the place that I would never have known about. I probably wouldn't have known about their cheeses, but I certainly wouldn't have known, you know, who was making it and the practices behind it. Uh, so I think I, I, I love that about what you do. Um, I suppose what I'm also really interested in is your life from the outside seems quite sort of, I, you know, it's pretty itinerant. You're moving from cheesemaker to cheesemaker. Is that something that you're, you know, you seem very relaxed with that. And I think, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm quite a sort of static individual. I've got my, you know, my feet very much on the ground where I am. Uh, you know, I get out and see the farmers, but I've got my, my place. How is that sometimes? Is that always like just easy or do you struggle with that at all? I guess I've really been spending decades preparing to travel the way I am now and kind of like learning the skills to make it happen and, and like do it in a, in a way that it doesn't cost a lot of money and um, and getting used to the the costs which are like loneliness uncertainty and a lack of like home which does start to wear on me especially now I've been traveling for six months and so like December and January were a little rough and I definitely um 
was like feeling homesick, you know, but I think that's, that is just the cost to pay for the kind of the freedom and the mobility that I have. And, and so it's, it's been a long process to get to where I am now, but I don't really feel that lonely because I've been meeting so many incredible people who have been opening their doors to me. And it's, it's amazing the network that has, that's, that's available, right? And that people that I had never met were just like, yeah, come stay with me and we'll like take care of you. And you know, I offered to volunteer in exchange for this, but um, I think it shows that when you throw yourself out there with, with good intentions and, and an open heart and um, are trying to do things not because of the money involved, but because of my passion for it, I think that shows and that people can detect it right away. Farmers in particular have a very strong bullshit detector. You know, they, they, they haven't really got time. Honestly, they don't have time. I mean, like you've spent time with Martin Gott and you spent time with Johnny, two, frankly, of the hardest people to get hold of. Uh, and pinned down to anything because you know they're, they're frankly they're like Johnny he run, I mean you will see this he runs everywhere he's got these massive welly boots on he's running everywhere because he's constantly on the go so I think yeah they haven't got time for someone coming in and just kind of getting in the way so I think so through J- December January you said it was you know pretty lonely but you were with you were with the gots were you through the sort of December period yeah yeah exactly and um it was kind of like slow up there because uh, obviously it's pretty slow everywhere after Christmas, you know? Um, and so they were kind of in between their seasons. Um, but it, it was good because I got a chance to kind of relax and, and get into some of the writing that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I need to, from time to time, take like a little bit of a break from like the constant motion. Um, so I stayed with Martin for a month and a half. And um, and we did a couple of trials of mozzarella because he's, going to eventually start making that and um with some really interesting milk dairy shorthorns but uh i've been wanting to work with martin for quite a while um, because of his knowledge of natural starter cultures i think it's, uh, it's the best example i know of a commercial cheese maker that's doing that and and has a program that could be easily be replicated and he's done a lot of the research and, um, and, and is really willing to share that. I'm interested to understand as well the commonalities as well. I think, you know, you've worked with cheesemakers in, in Mongolia, you've worked with cheesemakers, you know, in, on the continent, in Europe, here, the States. What is the commonality? I'm kind of, there's this question that's rushing around in my head a lot at the moment, is this idea of I think there's a perception of cheese making and of lots of different, I guess, fermentation in particular, is that there's a kind of an innate magic that producers somehow have this kind of innate ability, like, you know, someone can run fast, someone's a good cheese maker. And actually, something that Rob Howard down at Westcombe said recently to me is that his, if you want to call it this, his superpower is that he pays attention. And I'm sort of wondering what, from your observations what the kind of commonality between the people who make great cheese yeah well it definitely seems to be um a certain breed of person that wants to devote their time to cheese making especially in the west where there are so many things set against you like it's very rare that someone goes into artisan cheese making because they want to get rich you know it's usually like despite all of the obstacles you're doing it because you're passionate about it and stubborn and um and i think there's an element of like people who 
who enjoy complexity and enjoy a food with a lot of factors to juggle um, and, and have the ability to, to not simplify it down. And, um, and then there's, I mean, but there's a couple of types of cheesemakers really, you know, and, and some people are more of like farmers who want to keep doing dairy farming and cheese making just the way that they can do that, you know? So that's, that's a type right there. Um, and then there's the people who are just really into the food of it and really want to craft something that's beautiful and kind of appreciated, you know? Um, but as far as like a global connection, I'm, I'm still looking for that. Appreciate it, so that's a big question. It's, you know, Trevor's got all the answers. Uh... <laughs> what I'm trying to bring to the table is, is the diversity of approaches to making cheese and dairy and the commonalities and the and the differences but a lot of the issues that people face are the same in many countries um, the rising cost of land um, legal restrictions and um, and shifting like climate patterns you know, that's that's a huge threat to a lot of the stuff that I'm really interested in looking at, which is semi-nomadic pastoralism and transhumance um, and the idea of people grazing on common land. Um, it's an uncertain time. And I think there's a there's a value in the approach of pastoralists and people who are not tied to one place the way that we're kind of encouraged to be and the like model of agriculture of being like we're going to farm in this one place is a model that is um i think falling apart in a lot of places and so i'm interested in that well falling apart because it's perhaps not viable anymore uh, or, or and certainly won't be but also because you know people are i think asking questions people like you are asking questions but people perhaps who are less so heavily involved in it are asking questions as well something that's interesting you mentioned about climate change you spent a bit of time with those with, with sort of that semi-nomadic particularly in like spain you were spending time with like goat herders in the mountains and how is there because that that is a that is a practice that's so tied into a kind of a rhythmic pattern of the seasons is that something that those people are now already suffering because of yeah absolutely and i mean we're talking about a lifestyle that kind of requires people to have a long-term um, knowledge of weather patterns you know and and it certainly helps to be able to predict that somewhat if you're if you have to wait for the grass for the rain to come and the grass to start growing and that used to happen like in a regular pattern and that's no longer happening then then there's a threat to that whole way of life you know um and so like these the regions in spain that i really looked at um one was extremadura where i was hanging out with those goat herders and it is it is an arid area and that that type of um, of livestock rearing is a strategy that really makes sense in a place like that. Um, and so these are the places where this lifestyle has survived is the area where the land is marginal and too rocky or hilly to 
um, support the growth of arable crops. Um, and, and that's that's a lot of the world. And I think it's going to be more and more of the, of the world as desertification continues. Um, and so it's getting to the point that I think there's ways that we can that the, like the modern media environment and, and technology can assist these groups because of the ability to communicate with each other. Like, like in Mongolia, these people are living in yurts, but they all have cell phones or on Facebook and are talking to each other. So they're getting a sense of what's going on in other parts of the country. And, um, and there's assistance that can, can come to them through that connection. Um, and so, Really, what I'm looking at is not only the stuff that's been around for a really long time and, and the quote-unquote traditional, but how that, how the old ways are going to move into the future. What's that going to look like? Because tradition has never been static. It has never been a single thing. It has always been about slowly changing and adapting. And so the question is, how is how are these pastoralist groups going to adapt to changing conditions? So is it a case for, I guess, the, yeah, I think that's interesting. Survival is a tricky word, isn't it? Because it's this idea that you're kind of preserving something in its static, you know, in its state as it is now. But, you know, are we looking at combinations of drawing on heritage, drawing on tradition, but also embracing future technologies? I'm always slightly worried about when we talk about future technologies in terms of the climate, because I think there's this sort of Silicon Valley idea that someone will invent a machine. But actually, you're talking about advancing the ability for humans to communicate and do you think that's pretty crucial that communication yeah yeah definitely um because all of the information and techniques that were formerly tied to a place and a culture are now out there and so people in other parts of the world can learn from what these groups are doing and the groups themselves can start to adapt to different techniques you know and look at putting in place concepts that are like involved in permaculture right and ways to um create landscapes that can hold on to the water more and prevent things from running off and doing terracing and um all this stuff i think it's really encouraging as i'm traveling to see the good work that people are doing and the forward-thinking people that are getting involved with dairying on on so many different levels putting this stuff into practice and, and learning from what's happening in kind of like analogous parts of the world and and i'm actually really optimistic that at the same time that a lot of this stuff is that i'm seeing is like on the verge of disappearing i'm 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 optimistic about the future and i think that um we are a resilient species and that we're going to make it through all this just in what shape that's the question yeah exactly exactly yeah. And, and and at what what cost you know mm. and what is the world going to look like uh, coming out the other end but these are conversations that are happening and and people are are thinking about these things and it's like the since i've been in the uk talking to farmers and seeing that there's something in the air where people know that a shift needs to happen it's so encouraging I mean, this is, these are kind of like the, the circles that I run in. So maybe I'm getting a uh, one-sided view of it, but still it seems like you pick up like any like conventional farming magazine and they're talking about like some pretty progressive stuff. 
because it, it just makes sense even on, on a purely financial level. For many people, the most persuasive one, you know, is 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 that bottom line. And I, you know, farmers are business people, so fair enough. And and I think what's brilliant for for everybody else is that you can make that argument. Who have you been with then in the here in the UK? You, we've mentioned Martin Gott. Uh, you've just you literally just uh, left Fen Farm. I landed. I went. I went immediately to Neil's yard when I landed and got to see the arches and kind of. Uh, talk with some folks there about about what they're doing and got kind of like some suggestions and some connections uh, with cheesemakers. And then I went out and, and was staying with Jonathan Crump, who's raising Gloucester cows and, and making double and single Gloucester cheese. And uh, that was a really cool experience to see what he's doing with those cows and with other kind of rare breed animals. Um, that's another thing that really interests me in the UK. There's so many breeds of like breeds of sheep, you know, and so much of the history of modern breeding comes back to these breeds that were developed in the UK. Um, so that's another story that I'm really interested in exploring more and how these breeds have gone out around the world and what's left of them, you know. Um, and then I went to Havid and spent about two weeks there and really got to jump in and, and get involved with that cheese. Had so many amazing conversations about cheese and they're just like a really, it's a really open farm to the exchange of ideas. Like people are thinking about stuff and talking about it and there's just like a, so much energy around that stuff, you know? Um, and so I was really impressed with that. And, and I'm really interested in these, in like the, the milled curd, cheeses um large wheel i just i think they're so cool and this like a whole other style of cheese i haven't been exposed to very much that where the texture of them is really unique you know and it's like a huge part of these cheeses is texture um and i mean another great example of that is after i was in habit i went to applebee's and was making applebee's cheshire and that cheese is just incredible it's it's so subtle but it's like it's such a specific process to go through to get a certain texture and that's that's like a huge part of it right is that that really particular mouthfeel that's just pleasing um and just kind of a, a different way of making cheese a different way of removing moisture than i had seen before where it's really mechanical and um and just i mean that make room is just incredible like seeing those old presses and all this equipment that they have that they're still using you know um it's it's one of a kind really um and i and i was glad that i got to go see that and i think those are the stories that i'm really interested in i think what's interesting about what you do is there is always that view of the outsider so you you look you you know you get really stuck in you get your hands you know in the curds and all the rest of it but you are you know, an outside observer looking in, and I kind, of, I kind of feel like that as well. In that I'm, you know, I'm not from that world. I'm not from, a, you know, rural background. I've worked in cheese, but as a cheesemonger, which is a completely different thing from making. And you know, it, it, it's not just the making; it's the people and the politics of these different places that are all very isolated from one another, really. And you know, how, how the kind of the ethos of a place, you know, like Havard has got this incredible kind of, you know, experimentation and thirst for that, that sort of, you know, you speak to Jen, for example, um, about cheese and you suddenly realise you're not really talking about cheese. You're talking about something much bigger and like, you know, more kind of philosophical and, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's really exciting about what you're doing. 
what, what's next? You're spending time in Iceland and then... So I'll be there just for 10 days, a short trip. And then I'm going to fly to Sicily and work with a couple of cheesemakers there. I'm going to volunteer at a place where they're making this cheese called Vastata. It's like the, basically the only sheep's milk pasta filata cheese that I know of. So, you know, they're working with a pretty unique indigenous breed of sheep and, and making this stretched curd cheese that's uh, eaten very really young and we'll also be working with like a goat cheese maker there and probably get back down to the Ragusano area or Ragusa area and see Ragusano which is one of the most amazing cheeses I've ever seen um, and it really has some similarities to uh, the, the milk curd cheeses in the UK and, and so after Sicily um, I've been planning to go to Georgia for a number of years and um and i'm gonna do it this year and there's a a group of of uh they're basically semi-nomadic sheep herders that move their sheep seasonally from uh, this these winter grazing grounds down in the kind of more desert area close to azerbaijan and then in towards the end of april beginning of may they move them up into this mountainous region called Tusheti near the russian border and uh, and they make a cheese there that's aged in a goatskin sack. And I'm really fascinated with these cheeses that are aged in in animal skins. They're some of the most ancient cheeses there are. And the fact that they still exist is astonishing. And they're kind of like the complete opposite of our paradigm of stainless steel and sanitizer. Um, and you think of, you think when you hear about it that it's going to taste awful. Like how could a cheese aged the goat skin taste good? But I've tasted them at Bra, and they were mind blowing. There were flavors in there that I've never seen in cheese before. And so I want to get to the bottom of this and uh, and and see how it's done. And um, it's really a cheese that I think has is definitely a symbol of a culture and a group and they're rallying behind it and so it's a part of their like efforts at cultural revitalization and so that's the link that I'm kind of looking at is how are these cheeses emblems of a way of life um, that I think is becoming more and more relevant and and I really want to share that type of stuff with the world. So there he is, Trevor, Milk Trekker, uh, international milk man of mystery. Um, if you don't already follow him on Instagram, do. It's really brilliant. The pictures are beautiful. The places he goes are amazing. He speaks just so well and honestly about the people he meets. Um, yeah, so I really hope this is going to be the first of a few chats with Trevor along along the way. Um, obviously, he's got some amazing places lined up in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to hear from him about that. Um, he's also mentioned that he's writing a book. Uh, there's an idea of some films in the offing. He's a guy with lots of ideas who really just wants to spread the word of uh, the, these people who make amazing things. So I felt really lucky to speak to him. We've actually been trying on and off for the last few weeks, uh, what with one thing or another, uh, COVID included. We've not really had a chance to chat, but here we are. We made it as, as he's about to fly out of the UK. So I look forward to speaking to Trevor again uh, soon, I hope, for the Seliman podcast. The Seliman podcast is a Seliman Makes production. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, go to at Seliman Sam on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening.